scriptures of the Old Testament from Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17, and we commence our reading at verse 1. And then we read also from Psalm 95. Exodus chapter 17, page 75 and verse 1. Now by this stage the Lord has brought his people out of Egypt. Uh, he has um, given them water to drink. He's given them manna and quail to eat. And here now comes another point of need in their lives. And we read in verse 1, The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, travelling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarrelled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test. But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel. And take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. And go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this. In the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massah and Meribah. Because the Israelites crawled. And because they tested the Lord saying. Is the Lord among us or not? And then turn to Psalm uh, 95. Psalm 95. Uh, page 602. Page 602. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music. And song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, or since you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts 
as ye did at Meribah, as ye did that day at Massah in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For forty years I was angry with that generation, or I was grieved with that generation. I said, They are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Amen. There are some activities in life that carry a warning with them. For example, the person who smokes cigarettes is confronted with a health warning on the cigarette packet every time they take it into their hands. Smoking can damage your health. Or during a heat wave, we are warned to put on cream to protect our skin against sunburn. Or if we go to pursue certain leisure pursuits, um, such as bungee jumping, which I've never done, they carry with them a warning of the danger that is involved in high-risk sport. And recently, young people were warned of the danger of jumping into uh, quarry pools. There are activities in life that carry a warning, a solemn warning, of the danger that comes with them. What about when we come to church? Are there any dangers associated with taking part in the worship of God? Well, yes, there are. The third commandment, no doubt, often comes to your mind as it does to mine. And it warns us to be careful that in worship we do not take the name of the Lord our God in vain. That we don't worship with our lips in a thoughtless or irreverent um, or unconscious manner. Other passages of scripture warn us against approaching God with worship that we want to bring as opposed to approaching God with the worship that he wants to receive. So there are warnings that are found in the scripture with regard to worship. It is a dangerous activity that we are engaged in today. It has the potential for great blessing in our lives. But it also has the potential to bring great judgment into our lives. And this morning we're turning to Psalm 95, page 602 in the Church Bible. And this is a psalm about worship. And it carries a warning to us as we unite in worship. There's a very distinct change of mood in this psalm. That's why we didn't try to sing the whole psalm in one go. Because it would be impossible for Margaret, I think, to find a tune that would adequately reflect 
the two halves of this psalm if we were to sing it all in one go. Verses 1 to 7a, invite us and urge us to worship God. To do so enthusiastically. To do so gladly. To do so reverently and intelligently. The word come or the invitation come occurs three times. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 6. Three different words in the Hebrew. But all holding an invitation to come before the Lord. But then from the last part of verse 7, which the NIV rightly puts right next to verse 8, there is a warning as that to us as we participate in the worship of God. There is a danger we need to guard against in worship. And so the title of our sermon this morning is Worship with a Warning. Worship with a Warning. And the first thing we want to see this morning as we look at verse 1 uh, through to uh, two-thirds of the way through verse 7 is this sing with joy and reverence. Sing with joy and reverence. Verses 1 and 2 and 6 invite us to, to worship the Lord. And they provide us with instruction or the framework for worship. The psalmist refers to God by the name Jehovah. Or you, in your uh, English version it will be Lord in capital letters. That is significant. It doesn't just mean sovereign, which is the other meaning of Lord. But when it's in capital letters it means God's covenant name. That's the name by which he made himself known to Moses and the family of Abraham. When he was about to save them out of their bondage in Egypt. The name Jehovah or Lord in capital letters speaks of God in his salvation. In his saving work. It speaks of God drawing near to sinners. And quickening us and giving us spiritual life. And giving us his Holy Spirit. The psalmist sums it up in the next uh, verse. In the next line when he's, of verse 1 he says. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. The Lord equals the rock of our salvation. It's a reference to Christ. A reference to Christ. And this is foundational in the worship of God. In worship we rightly exalt God as creator. But if we worship God only as the creator of all things, our worship is flawed. That's the difference between deism and Christianity. 
Deism just worships God as a creator. Christianity worships God as saviour. And so if we worship God only as creator, our worship is flawed, it falls short, it is ultimately unacceptable. Because God is to be worshipped for his greater work, the work of salvation, the deliverance from bondage to sin that he has accomplished in the Christ, the rock of our salvation. And in the Old Testament, as much as in the New Testament, he is the rock of salvation. Nobody was saved in the Old Testament out of their sins without looking to Christ. Yes, they had only the merest glimpse, the faintest shadow, the most general outline of the Christ in the Old Testament. But you had to look at that and you had to believe that in the Old Testament to be saved. That he would come. That he would live a sinless life. That he would die a sin-bearing death. And so the worship of God must focus us on salvation in Christ. And so this morning, I want to ask you, if you're in church this morning, I want to ask you, if you're here and you haven't thought about this before, is Jesus the rock of your salvation? Is he the one upon whom you are building your life? You're listening to him and you're obeying him. Following him, as we were saying there, uh, before the children sang. Now when Christ is the rock of our salvation, when our lives are built upon him, we're listening to him and we're obeying him, then our worship will be joyful. Verse 1. Let us sing for joy to the Lord Jesus. That's why Paul in the New Testament can say again and again, Rejoice in the Lord. And again I say, Rejoice. Our worship in Christ will also be marked by thanksgiving. Verse 2, Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. And extolling, and it literally is then, with psalms. It's the word that's used for psalms in the Old Testament. So with this note then, uh, and this emphasis, that in worship we are to sing with joy to God through Christ, the rock of our salvation. But then if you jump forward to verse 6, where we have the third come, another note is sounded, and now it is the note of reverence. Yes, we come with joy in Christ, but we come with reverence. Because, verse 6, Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Springing out the fact 
that this Christ is a king. He is the king, as we'll see in a moment when we go back to verse 3. And so you and I are to come bowing down, come humbling ourselves. If we were to today brought into the presence of Queen Elizabeth, we would not strut into her presence. We would come in humility. We would come with reverence. We would come in submission. We would come with a mindset of service. And how much more must that be the case when Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords? The Lord Jesus shares our flesh and bone. But he's not our chum. He is our king. The word maker here is not referring to creation of the body, but it's the fact that he's made us into the people of God. Hebrews picks up on it that way and talks about the the Lord Jesus being our maker, the, the builder of the church. That's the concept here. So we sing with joy and reverence. Something else to notice about the worship. This worship of the Lord with joy and reverence. Notice the psalmist's use of the words us, let us. And notice the use of the word are in verses 1 and 2 and 6. Let us sing, let us shout the rock of our salvation. They remind us that worship is public. Worship is corporate. Worship is a shared event. Christians who say, I don't need to go to church. I can worship the Lord at home or I can worship him on the golf course. They are wrong. They are wrong. They are mistaken. Notice and grasp this emphasis on coming together. And failure to gather and worship with others under Christ ordained leadership is not healthy. It's not healthy. It's not good for us. It's a dangerous course to follow. Because when people follow that course, then self is king, not Christ. Sing with joy and reverence as we gather corporately in worship. Now let's go back to verse 3, where we're told that the Lord is king, not just of his church, but above all gods. And you think about Israel here. The people to whom this psalm was originally written. She has encountered false gods in Egypt, the land of her captivity, and also in Canaan, the land of promise. A whole range of false gods. But the Lord has shown himself to Israel to be king over these gods. The magicians in Egypt 
representing the gods of Egypt, could not prevent the death of the firstborn son and the release of the Lord's people out of Egypt. Why not? Because God is the true God. And these other gods, though worshipped, were false. And today many gods are worshipped and proclaimed across the earth. And we are being encouraged increasingly in our nation to be multi-faith, multicultural, that all gods ultimately lead to the one place. It's like going up a mountain. You can go up at different sides, but you'll reach the same top. That's not what Scripture says. It says there's one true and living God. And all other gods are dumb idols, the vain imaginations of fallen human thought. What an important truth to be reminded of each Sabbath, that the Lord that we worship is King, not just above all gods, but he's also King of your life, your circumstances. Your difficulties, your challenges, nothing happens outside of his kingly rule. Otherwise he would not be king if things could happen to you and me that were not within his purpose. But then look at verses 4 and 5. This Lord that we worship with joy and reverence corporately, He's not only king above all gods, but he upholds the universe. The deepest valley, the highest mountain, the sea, the dry land. He made them all and they're in his hand. Think about that. This Lord Jesus is so great and so glorious that this entire universe... All the stars, all the galaxies, all the dry land, all the sea. He can scoop it all up and hold it as it were in his hand. How great he is and how glorious he is. And again, think of what that means for you, his child. If he holds all creation... In its every part. That means he holds your life. In his hand as well. And you remember what Jesus said. No one can pluck you. Out of my hand. And so we worship him. For that. We sing with joy and reverence to the Lord. We do it corporately. We do it because he's the rock of our salvation. He's king. He's the upholder of the universe. But then look at verse 7 where there's another truth brought out. And here we have another strand to our worship. The Lord our shepherd. The Lord our shepherd. That's the imagery now in verse 7. We are the people of his pasture. He's taken us into his flock. John chapter 10. Remember Jesus said, 
I call my sheep by name, they hear my voice, they follow me. And then he talks about there being one flock and one shepherd gathered from the nations of the earth. The sheep gathered, that is, from the nations of the earth. And you see, we're under his tender care. Under his tender care. A shepherd is tender with the sheep. He's thinking of a sheep, providing for them. Sensitive to their needs. Doesn't drive them along forcefully. But he leads them. In the east, they never put a dog after the sheep. The shepherd went before and the sheep followed. What a beautiful picture of our Saviour. The shepherd. He and we are brought together in relationship. One to the other. He is the shepherd. We are the sheep. He doesn't drive us along through life. He doesn't hunt us with a dog. He leads us. So that we shall not want. And when our souls faint within us, as they surely do, he restores our souls. And when he as king brings us into the dark valley, he doesn't say, now go through it on your own and get on with it. And grin your, grit your teeth and bear it. No, he walks step by step beside us. And he leads us through the dark valley. And he anoints our heads so that we're refreshed. And he preserves us against our enemies. In Psalm 23, the last line, he receives us into his sheepfold, into his house forevermore. We have reason to sing with joy and with reverence to the Lord Jesus, to his Father and our Father, because he is the rock of our salvation. He is the king of our lives. He's the upholder of our lives. He's the shepherd of our lives. And we unite together on the Lord's day and we exalt him together because of who he is to us in the purpose of his Father. Worship. It's a glorious, glorious privilege. Never take it for granted. Never become familiar. Never allow it to become mundane. Just something we do out of the habit. This is the great purpose, the great blessing that comes to us when we worship God the Father in Christ the Son by the Holy Spirit. Let's notice then, secondly, the warning part. We thought about sing with joy and reverence, and now we need to think about listen with faith and obedience. Listen with faith and obedience. We come now to the last statement in verse 7 and then right the way through to the end of the psalm. And the mood of the psalm suddenly changes in the closing statement of verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, is how it's rendered in most of our English versions. The unbounded worship 
of the opening section is now tempered by a solemn warning. And in the second half of the psalm, the Lord now speaks directly and forcefully to his church. The words that recur now in verses 8 to 12 are your on the one hand and then me and my and I on the other hand. You're referring to Israel and the me and the my and the I referring to God. God, the Lord himself, Christ is speaking. And verse 7b is Christ's summons to his church in that day. As in our day. Today. And it literally translated is slightly different from what it is in our English versions. And and it's unfortunate that our English versions translated with the word if. Because there's not any question about when we come together and worship. We don't have to come to worship and think, will God speak today? Will Christ speak today or not? And if Christ speaks today, the fact is Christ is speaking today. And Christ does speak today. And so a better translation would be uh, today, oh, that you would listen to his voice. Or to translate the word if as since. Since you hear his voice. In family life, parents sometimes have to say to a child, but you are not listening. You're not listening. You're not hearing me. And our greatest danger in worship is that we're not listening. We're not hearing. When a parent says that to their child, they usually are meaning you're not obeying. You're not taking on board what I've said. That's a great danger of us understanding what the Lord is saying to us, but not taking it on board. We all find it easier to listen to ourselves. And to listen to his voice. We find it easier to listen to our friends than to his voice. We find it easier to listen to the world than his voice. We find it easier to do what we want than what Christ wants. To do what others want us to do than what Christ wants us to do and they want us to see now a really significant thing here in this psalm worship is not about singing only it's not even about singing primarily the great mistake that the church has fallen into in the past hundred years is defining worship As singing. What happens. When there's music and words. Of whatever shape and form. But listening to God. Is the defining act. Of worship. Listening. To Christ. 
is the defining act of worship. Anyone can get whipped up in the singing with joy and sometimes with irreverence. And it's like shaking a bottle of fizzy drink. It's all froth. But we are to be listening to God. That's the defining act of worship. That's the mark of whether there has been worship that has taken place in churches today. Is there a listening to the voice of Christ? And we listen to the voice of Christ. Not in the speaking of tongues. Not in the word of prophecy. But in the scriptures. In the scriptures. What did Jesus say to the Father? Your word is truth. The scriptures of the Old Testament. Jesus was referring to there. And then we come into the New Testament. And we have the apostles. Speaking of the word of Christ. Coming to them. And them writing it down. And so we listen to the voice of Christ when we open this book that we have in our hands and we read it and we hear it preached and applied to our lives. Anything else, anything less, anything more is not listening to his voice. And there's a great deal of nonsense today in Christian churches and Christian circles about listening to God. And it's listening without His voice, the Scriptures. And it's not listening. It's listening to self. What I want to hear God say to me. What I want to do. And so here to press the point home that listening is the defining act of worship, the Lord introduces an illustration in verses 8 and 9. He takes his church back to two events. One we read of in Exodus 17, and the other is in Numbers chapter 20. Read it this afternoon if you're not familiar with it. Both concern water and their need of water. One took place in the early period after the Lord had saved Israel powerfully and miraculously from Egypt. It happened in the first three months of their pilgrimage with the Lord. And the other, Numbers 20, took place at the end of 40 years. After which, or during those 40 years, the Lord had provided for his people day in and day out. As they journeyed through the wilderness. So it's like two bookends. Early on in their Christian journey. And then at the end of 40 years. And what does the Lord accuse his people of in that earlier generation? Look at verse 9. Because it's summed up here. Your fathers tested and tried me. Though they had seen what I did. They had seen the Lord's power. 
They had seen his miracles in Egypt. They had seen the ten plagues come upon the Egyptians and they had seen themselves being protected by the Lord. And since they have left Egypt, they have seen the Lord provide them with manna and meat. They have enjoyed the Lord's presence in the pillar and and the cloud as we sang there in Psalm 78. They have taken part in the Lord's worship in the tabernacle. And so many, many other ways they have seen the Lord at work among them and for them and against their enemies. But here's the issue. They doubt the Lord in every new challenge that arises in their circumstances. Oh, this one's too great. This one's beyond the Lord. And they murmur against him. And they grumble against him. And every fresh challenge in their lives produces a crisis for them. A crisis in their faith. A crisis in their obedience. The problem is that though the Lord has delivered them out of Egypt... And they've taken that initial step. They're like the seed that has been sown on the stony ground and the thorny ground. And there's a springing up, yes, but there's not a going down. There's not a growing in faith and obedience. They're not exercising their faith in the Lord who provides day after day. Their faith almost as it were, is stillborn. How tragic. How tragic. And yet how possible for us also. John Newton, the slave trader, who was converted, we're familiar with his words, Amazing Grace, and he speaks of in that A poem of the dangers and the toils and snares of the Christian life. The dangers and the toils and the snares. And that's still true of your life and my life. They're the dangers. They're the toils. They're the snares. You see, how we respond to them is what matters. Do we respond Do I respond? Do you respond to every new situation, every new challenge in our lives with renewed faith and obedience? Are we heard saying, Our God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that I ask or expect? My Saviour is greater than this difficulty. My Saviour is greater than this opposition. My Saviour is greater than this illness. My Saviour is greater than this temptation. 
My Savior is greater than this trial. Do we lift up our eyes to the Lord, the maker of the heavens and of the earth? Or do we look within ourselves and despair? That's what Israel did. She looked down instead of looking up. She looked in instead of looking out. And when we look down and look in, we will despair. When we look up and we look out, we will have hope from our Saviour. And this lack of bold faith and daring obedience, look at the disastrous consequences that it had for Israel. Verse 10, again it's not a good translation here. I was angry is not the right translation. It was for 40 years I was grieved. The Lord will speak of his anger later. But it's not anger at this point, it's grief. I was grieved. His Holy Spirit was grieved with that generation. I said there are people whose hearts go astray. You see, that's where the problem always arises. It arises in our hearts, not our circumstances. Our hearts, they do not regard my ways. They grieve the Holy Spirit. What about you? What about me? As the Lord from heaven this morning casts his eye over the years of your Christian pilgrimage and mine. Has he caused to be grieved by our unbelief and disobedience? Has he reason to say there are people whose hearts go astray, they do not regard my ways? Or does he look from heaven this morning with pleasure and say, Behold my servant, as he could say of Job, of many others in the scriptures and from Israel. And you see, verse 11 then brings us to the tragic outcome for this unbelieving generation. I swore in my anger they should not enter my rest. They wouldn't enter Canaan. They lost Canaan by their unbelief, by their disobedience, by not allowing, as it were, the word of Christ to go down into their hearts like the good ground, the seed in the good ground, and then that word spring up in obedience. Our God is able. Our Saviour is able. They never inherited the kingdom of God. That is serious, is it not? It is so serious that the New Testament picks up on this part of Psalm 95. In Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. And applies it to believers in the first century. The Jewish Christians, Christians 
who had come from a Jewish background and they were encountering all kinds of opposition to their faith. And they're warned of the same grave danger. Hebrews chapter 3 verses 7 to 11. The writer quotes this second half of Psalm 95 in its entirety. And then here's his application in verse 12 of Hebrews 3. See to it, brothers, that none of you, not one of you, has, and here was the problem, a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called Today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we profess him. No. If we follow him for a period. No. If we hold firmly to the end, the confidence we had at first. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at first. We might put it down, put it, or bring it down to this level for your life and my life. A sinful, unbelieving heart turns away from Christ in the testing circumstances of life. A believing, obedient heart clings all the more tenaciously and firmly to Christ in life's difficulties, in life's dangers, in life's toils, in life's snares, in life's temptations. And the question is, which are we doing in our pilgrimage? Worship with a warning. Every Sabbath as we meet for worship, let us sing with joy and reverence to the rock of our salvation. The king, the upholder, the shepherd of our lives. But let us with equal enthusiasm and zeal listen with faith and obedience. Because listening to God is the defining act of worship. The Lord does not judge our worship by the heartiness of our singing but by the quality of our faith and obedience to him. Amen. <coughs> let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father, we confess before you the fickleness of our hearts and the shallowness of our faith. Lord, that we can be like Israel. We have seen so much of your goodness and your mercy in Christ, 
in our lives. But something new happens. Something we've never not experienced before. Or perhaps it's something we have encountered before. And we say too much. We say I can't go on. We grumble. We ask how can the Lord be with us? And this happened. Father have mercy upon us. Help us to know that the Lord is with us in the darkness of the night as much as he is with us in the noonday sunlight. He is ever with his people. And he will ever uphold us by his right hand. Help us to trust in him. Help us to obey him. Help us to do so with a boldness and a confidence that holds fast to the end. And that we will know that we have a share in him because we hold firmly to the end. Help us today, since we hear his voice, to respond now to him with faith and love and obedience. For he showed forth his love for us by dying for us on the cross of Calvary, giving us all, enable us to give our all in return. In Jesus' name, Amen.